Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, we also saw a very interesting lawsuit pop up. One of the most recognizable album covers in music is the subject of this new lawsuit alleging it constituted child pornography. Spencer Eldon is suing over Nirvana's Nevermind album cover, in which he is pictured as a naked baby 30 years ago. For more on this lawsuit, we'll speak to Chris Willman, Features Editor at Variety. The infant in question is now 30, just like the Nevermind album, obviously, because uh, he was four months old when the cover was shot. And I think the cover was shot just about two months before the album came out. So it was fairly last minute as things, things go. And, you know, his father, the baby's father, was friends with the photographer who, and they had some kind of vague instructions about shooting a baby underwater. And at the time, 1991, um, it was like, come to the uh, aquatic center, the Rose Bowl, and uh, for $200, throw your baby in the water. And, you know, it, it's, it's in question, you know, how much they knew about what it was going to be used for. But in interviews in the past, the baby is now a young man, uh, Spencer Eldon, has has said that they didn't really know, his parents didn't really know what it was going to be used for, how potentially it was going to be used until they drove by Tower Records on Sunset and saw this huge blow-up of the photo shoot. Right. And for that, they got $200 and a teddy bear and a platinum record, when the record went platinum, and that was it. So the, the young man in question has had 30 years to sort of deal with this, and he's been ambivalent over the years. He, he's participated in many interviews and photo shoots where he, as an adult or a teenager, he recreated the the album cover, albeit wearing swim trunks right. and, and not naked like the baby on the cover. <laughs> so it seemed like he was enjoying his fame. Yeah, he did it. At, course, for, he did it for at least four album cover anniversaries. So uh, there's a number of times yeah. he he did recreate it. And he even got Nevermind tattooed on his chest. So there there was a level of enjoyment amid the ambivalence. It would seem like. But now, all of a sudden, kind of out of the blue, for the 30th anniversary, we have this lawsuit where he is alleging that it was child pornography, which not not a lot of people yeah. saw coming. You know, it, it, you might have expected, hey, we're suing because we didn't sign a release, which is something they also contend, or we deserve more payment out for 30 million albums sold than $200. But that's not the way they're going. They're that, going with the child porn angle. That, that's exactly what I was talking to other people about when this story came out today. It was like... I can totally understand somebody saying, I'm going to file a lawsuit to get damages back for this. We didn't sign the release of that photo. Let's go down this legal route to see what we can get back. That's totally understandable. And we've seen it in other different cases. But to go this child pornography route is so odd to me. They say that because they have the fish hook with the dollar on there and the baby's like swimming towards it, it makes them look like a sex worker. You know, some of the stuff that's in the in the lawsuit, if you can help elaborate on that, it's pretty crazy, it seems like. I mean, I, I just have spoken with the legal team for the young man, and they're a legal team that specializes in child pornography cases. So that may help explain why that is their main angle here yeah. and not the, you, you didn't sign a release. That's what they do. They do child pornography lawsuits. And so that's what they're hitting with heavy. And, and, it, and it makes um, sense when you read certain passages from the lawsuit, you know, the way they write it, it, it is geared very specifically to that angle. 
you know, having talked to the lawyer, one of the lawyers on the case, you know, she's very passionate about this. This is something she considers part of what she deals with all the time in terms of child exploitation. And while the rest of us may go, oh, where'd that come from? This is like, well, of course, to them, it's child pornography. So the reaction I'm seeing, Nirvana fans may be biased, but it seems like not a lot of people over the last 30 years have been saying, oh, this is obviously child porn. Now, you know, you look up online and you will see Reddit groups everywhere going, is that legal You know, to show a, a baby's penis? And then the answer will be, well, yeah, actually it is if it's non-sexualized. So, of course, with this lawsuit, they're taking the position that it's totally sexualized. But that would seem to be in the eye of a beholder. And I would say not a plurality of beholders have, have thought that way until now. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, on that front, too, right, the part of the story goes is that they said maybe at the time, maybe we'll put a sticker over Spencer's little Spencer there. But Kurt Cobain insisted saying that if we put a sticker there, it would basically say if uh, you were offended by this, you must be a closet pedophile. So, I mean, even back then, it seemed like they were thinking about that maybe. But I just feel like a lot of people would look at that and, and not feel that it was a sexualized photo. Who knows? I guess that's up to a judge, right? Yeah, or a jury. They want a jury trial on this. And I asked the lawyer, I said, are you going to appeal to sort of the plurality of opinion out there? Because I, I would say that, you know, not most people historically so far have not considered this child porn. And, and she was like, that doesn't matter. You know, it's it, what, what the jurors think after we presented our case is what matters. So wow. she's convinced that 12 people will see this as child porn, whether they came into it thinking it's just innocent Nirvana yeah. cover or not. Chris Willman, Features editor at Variety. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. The recall election of California Governor Gavin Newsom is also underway right now with the deadline of September 14th for mail-in ballots. Recent polls have shown that the recall is closer to passing than Democrats would like, and a lot of it comes down to voter enthusiasm. Without Trump as a foil, are enough Democrats paying attention and energized to vote to defeat that recall? For more on all this, we'll speak to David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. If it was a normal election, if this was a, a, a normal year in November, maybe even an off year, but a normal time frame with candidates and issues on the ballot, this wouldn't be a problem at all in California for Democrats, right? They have this huge registration advantage. Republicans are less than a quarter of the electorate and the governor would sail. But because this is this unusual ballot, like you pointed out, this two question proposition, the polling indicates that Republicans are far more amped up about this election than Democrats are. So it would still take a huge imbalance of Republican to Democratic turnout for this to work for Republicans. But it's close enough in at least most models that Democrats are worried. I think you spoke to former Governor Gray Davis, and he said that he's probably willing to bet that not, you know, about half the people in the state know that there's an election going on right now, much less when the deadline is. And that's the huge worry is the, the turnout. I know the Latino vote is a thing, but just getting people interested enough to do this, as you mentioned, this isn't even the midterms right now. It's this weird special election we're going through. Yeah, there's two things going on here. And Davis, I think, would put the emphasis on the first thing. Some other people would put it on the second. But the, the first is that it's August in, in an off year. And, and we're in the middle of a pandemic still. So there are people are paying attention to the coronavirus, getting back to school. They're not used to thinking about elections in August in California. So there's there's that going on, and that is a hurdle. And then the second thing is that we're really getting our first taste of elections in the post-Trump era. And 
Democrats were able to juice up their turnout with Donald Trump on the ballot or in the White House. And nationally, there's been some signs already that it's a lot harder without Trump to vote against to get Democrats to turn out. There was a race in Connecticut last week that had Democrats worried because this was a Biden plus 20 district that a a Republican won. It was a state race. And then there was a House race in Texas earlier in the year that was also low turnout and where a a Democrat didn't even make it through the all-party primary. So combined with California, that's the concern. Yeah. And there's 46 candidates running against Governor Gavin Newsom. I mean, that's a lot of people to go through and and try to settle on somebody. But that's what the Newsom campaign has been doing throughout this whole process is trying to pin it on uh, this Republican controlled recall, trying to pin it to Trump supporters. Larry Elder, who's a conservative talk radio host in California, he's the leader right now in the polls, it seems like also trying to uh, uh, attach him to Trump or make him seem even more far right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So there's this weird dynamic in California where, and honestly, it goes back even further than this election. But but right now you're seeing Newsom spend money to raise the name ID of his chief Republican opponent, which is normally something you would let the opponent do themselves. But Elder obviously doesn't have anywhere near the resources that Newsom has. So it's better for Newsom if it's not just an up or down question on Newsom but a question of Newsom or Larry Elder, who he, you know, is elevating his profile and portraying him as a a Trump of California. What's, I think, quirky about California is that you go back to when he was elected, Newsom was first elected, there there was also an effort by Democrats in that primary, the party primary, to spend money elevating the name ID of another Republican, John Cox, so that Newsom could avoid a two-Democrat runoff, which ultimately happened. So if you know, if, if Newsom re- wins the recall, is reelected next year, we, we could be at a point a few years from now where Newsom's legacy at least rests in part on spending money to heighten public awareness about Republicans. David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Finally for this week, people with dissociative identity disorder have taken their lives to YouTube and the community has tons of fans. Formerly known as multiple personality disorder, people with DID are sharing what it's like to live with a condition, as well as letting their alternative personalities or alters come forward to be seen and answer questions. For a closer look at a YouTube content creator with DID named Wynn, we'll speak to Lizzie Feidelson, contributor at New York Magazine. So I actually got served one of the DID YouTube videos just by the YouTube algorithm while I was reporting something else. And when I first saw the videos, I was pretty... I guess surprised even to see DID existed, actually. I hadn't really given too much thought to the disorder before in my life, but I definitely knew that it was one of those things that people sometimes would say, oh, this is pretend or it's not real. And real quick, if I may, you know, a lot of people, it's called dissociative identity disorder, but a lot of people know it by multiple personality disorder, you know, a term that's not really used very much anymore. Uh, Yeah, so the official name of the diagnosis was was changed to DID or dissociative identity disorder, as you say, in the mid-90s, I believe. But yeah, I just sort of started, I stumbled across the videos myself and realized that that was happening to a lot of people, that a lot of these videos had a ton of views and especially actually right at the beginning of quarantine had kind of like exploded in popularity. And Wynn had one of the most kind of robust and consistent, there are a lot of channels that would kind of crop up for a minute and then into obscurity, but Wynn had been posting a lot of videos about 
her life with DID pretty much since right after she was diagnosed with the disorder. You got introduced to this through the YouTube algorithm. For myself, mm -hmm. actually, I had a similar experience. I was just trolling around on TikTok and it came across somebody's page where they were also dealing with this. They had made a whole page dedicated to their system. And I tell you, I, I spent hours looking through that thing and just kind of fascinated by it, uh, seeing the different alternative personalities, seeing how they operate in daily life. So, yeah, and, and I kind of went down the hole with Wynn's page as well. It just kind of you fall into it and you, you know, you have a, a healthy dose of skepticism sometimes, but other times it makes total sense. So there's a lot that definitely goes into it. If you could tell me about Wynn in particular, how she found out or how she was diagnosed with this and then about some of her different identities. To your point about being really fascinated, I think that kind of gets to the heart of these channels as a phenomenon and what makes them kind of a complicated phenomenon is that they were simultaneously providing community for a lot of people like Wynn who have DID, who truly do suffer from the symptoms that they have and who can lead really difficult lives as a result. But then also, you know, there were a ton of people who didn't have DID who just found it really interesting. And that can, you might imagine, get kind of uh, complicated when you have a sort of fandom for a mental health condition. First, I'll say that even though something like DID seems really almost fantastical or otherworldly in the way that it can come off. Most people or many people with DID don't know that they have it. Um, they might experience symptoms like amnesia or just a sort of ambient sense of confusion about who they are that goes much deeper and is much more profound than something that someone without DID would experience. But people with DID often find ways to rationalize it or just simply don't want to admit to themselves that they're losing time or kind of coming to and realize that they've like bought something or done something or said something that they have no recollection of doing or that doesn't feel like it connects to who they are as a person. So Wynne had had a lot of experiences like this throughout her life. But it actually wasn't until she was in her early 20s and was actually at basic training, she had joined the army, that she started to really experience a lot of really intense DID symptoms. And DID is related to childhood trauma. So she was having a lot of symptoms related to PTSD, a lot of panic attacks, a lot of feeling like she wasn't herself in, a, as I said, like much more profound way than, than you or I might feel. She would look in the mirror and feel like she didn't recognize her own face. And she, it took her a really, really, really long time to actually get diagnosed with DID after that. It took about six years of her seeing mental health professionals and going to different kinds of therapy to finally meet a, a therapist who suggested that she take this exam called the MID. It's one of a couple different clinical aids in the diagnosis of dissociative disorders. So she took this exam and based on based on her answers and the kind of clinical evaluation that the that her therapist was able to make, she was diagnosed with DID. Wynne for herself has a bunch of different alters, a bunch of different alternative personalities. Some are men, some are women, some are younger, some are older. I think one of them is a fairy uh, she identifies as. So, uh, you know, all those can get pretty complicated too. But you spoke to a bunch of experts in the field of DID, people who have treated people that have dissociative identity disorder, what did they have to say about this? Because being on such a public forum like YouTube, putting it all out there, some of them didn't really agree with that. They said that it might hurt a little bit more than help. 
I think that one thing that's interesting about DID is that there's a lot of research about DID, but almost or a lot of it is based on clinical experience as opposed to like data-based studies. So a lot of people's understandings of what's best for people with DID comes from years of talking to people with DID, years of treating people with DID and trying to help them as opposed to like data about the condition. So yeah, I guess like the experts I talked with had a lot of different opinions about whether being on the internet and being really public about DID and being proud of DID, um, the way people like Win are, was good for people, yeah, as you say, or whether it could actually sort of reinforce and reinscribe and kind of worsen to a certain degree the dissociative barriers that people experience as a result of having DID. So some people were categorically like this is a really, really bad idea and it's going to exacerbate mental illness, basically. I guess other people were a little bit more uncertain about what it all meant and it seemed to be a little bit more of an open question for them as to whether people with DID going online and making videos about their disorder would ruin their lives or whether it was actually kind of helpful, as many people with DID say it is. I will say that historically, clinicians have often discouraged people with DID from even interacting with each other in person at all, um, which is pretty unique. So that's something that... Yeah, but in this YouTube realm, I mean, that's what really brought them together. I mean, Wynn was talking to other people with DID, and they really felt a sense of community. Uh, You know, it helped them kind of get over some of the stigma. I think uh, Wynn, even for her part, put in her videos, you know, uh, that she was trying to help fight against the stigma of people with DID as well. If you could, Lizzie, tell me about some of your conversations that you had with her over all of this, because you had some several Zoom sessions and whatnot. And you saw, got a chance to see some of the alters firsthand. How did that experience go? Well, I think that like DID is often really powerfully sensationalized. Like most people's associations with the disorder is like Sybil or Three Faces of Eve or Split, right. that M. Night Shyamalan movie. So people will often think that people with DID will switch in a really dramatic way and another personality will kind of come out and express something really powerfully different than another personality, maybe. I would say that wasn't the case. And in Wynn's case, there were a few times that other alters in her system wanted to speak with me, um, which I had expressed was fine. Um, And so at the beginning of the call, they would just say, you know, oh, it's actually so-and-so who's out. And I just kind of tried to roll with it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an interesting look, as I mentioned, uh, reading the article and then kind of uh, pairing it with the YouTubes. uh, You know, you just go down the hole. It is very interesting, fascinating to kind of look at. Um, But uh, I suggest everybody go out and uh, read Lizzie's full piece at New York Magazine. There's so many details we couldn't get to for this piece right here, but you spoke to a lot of experts, uh, just more examples from Wynn's YouTube videos. Um, There's so much into it. Lizzie Feidelson. Contributor to New York Magazine, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.